In 2009, I wrote an angry letter to Spin Magazine, the sadly defunct pop culture periodical of the alternative scene, formative for a generation of music and art lovers who were raised in the waning influence of Rolling Stone and its baby boomer obsession. Spin was the magazine whose reviews I most credit with instilling in me a desire to be a music journalist, particularly when I was in college, which is where I was when I penned the angry letter in question. Now, the letter's exact wording is lost to me, but its purpose is not. I wanted to furiously condemn a critic for giving a mediocre three-star review to the Decemberists' prog folk opus, The Hazards of Love. Now, I was a white, suburban-raised English major who came of age in the folk revival of the aughts. So, in other words, the Decemberists were my band. And as such, I felt they required a full-throated defense. Specifically, I remember taking issue with the snide, dismissive tone of the review, which included admonishments of singer Colin Malloy's occasionally pretentious word choices, and an overall attitude of stubborn conviction that the reviewer was too cool for the literate and notoriously bookish band. I remember he used the word dude in the review, which for some reason I felt was a great sin at the time. My response was harsh and overly defensive. I mean, after all, it wasn't as if the reviewer had outright trashed the album, the band, or me personally. He just didn't enjoy it as much as I had. Still in my ire, I reflexively lambasted a stranger over what was, by any measure, a matter of taste. Taste. How can we quantify taste? What gives one person's taste authority over others? In the time I spent reviewing and writing about music in and around my college days, I asked this question of a lot of people. What is the point of a review? The two most common responses were these. One, it is the job of a critic to be a gatekeeper of quality, to make sure that curious or confused audiences experience the best of what's out there and avoid wasting their time and money on bad art. And or two, it is the job of a critic to promote the best art so that artists will make better art. Now by these definitions, a critic is whoever can distinguish between what's good and what's bad and let others know the difference. Similarly, for people who read and respond to reviews, the critics worth reading are those whose tastes most seem to match their own. Thus, by this definition, reviewing art is a matter of taste and the quality of a person's taste is of paramount importance, and those with whom we disagree are said to have bad taste. Hierarchies are formed, awards are given out, top ten lists are written, scores are aggregated on sites like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, entire corners of the internet are built around this system of belief. But this belief has a whole host of harmful side effects. Praise becomes fodder for marketing, and because that marketing is essential for the profit potential of movies and albums and TV shows and video games, there is a financial stake in getting positive coverage. Many are the stories of critics in one circle or another being bought off for good reviews, and many are the reviewers who seem to write with the main intention of getting their names on a poster. For artists, reviews become a source of stress, anger, and contempt. For audiences, reviews become an argument. We feel the need to defend ourselves against differing opinions, or, when our opinions are validated, we look down on those with whom we disagree. How many times have you or someone you know seen the massive box office earnings of a movie that critics absolutely panned and thought, wow, there are a lot of dumb people buying movie tickets these days? 
taste becomes a badge, or a burden, or a shield. But I think there's a better way. The problem with reviewing art these days is that we've made taste the determining factor in our understanding of art. The way we should be reviewing is not around taste, but around perspective. Despite what the evil food critic in Ratatouille might have you believe, perspective is not an end, but a process. That is, a final opinion does not constitute a perspective. Perspective is about where you're coming from, and how what you're observing appears from that perspective. In other words, it's not about why you like something. It's about how you like something. I spent years developing what I think is a more useful method for reviews, and it's as easy as two steps. Step one, context. Step two, analysis. How you experience art, or how you experience anything really, dictates what that experience will yield. Now there are a few different ways this method can work, but the most basic version is this. You experience something, whether that means watching a movie, or playing a game, or reading a piece of legislation, or whatever else you can think of. Then, having experienced that thing, you have to think about it. Now, this is the hardest part, I promise. Think about the thing you just experienced, and try to think of one way to make sense of it. One way of considering the experience in question that explains it in a way that you feel is satisfying. Then, when you are ready to share your thoughts with others, formulate an analysis of the subject by running through the thing with your context in mind. Okay, that's a little abstract. Let's try an experiment. Think of your favorite song. Play it in your head. Where were you when you first heard it? What was going on around you? How old were you? Was it in a particularly stirring episode of a TV show? Did someone play it for you on a date? Did you love it immediately? Or did you have to listen to it a few times for it to click? Or had you heard it years before and then heard it again and suddenly realized how great it is? Maybe you're having a hard time deciding on a favorite song. Maybe it depends on your mood. Maybe you have a favorite song for when you're dancing, or a favorite song for when it rains, or a favorite song to drive to, or a song for when you're feeling romantic, or nostalgic, or angry, or lonely. Maybe it's a song that perks you up after a hard day, or that mellows you out when you're stressed. All of these things, from your personal history with a particular song to the various moods or activities which are the best for you to listen to that song, are contexts. Now imagine that your closest friend says that they've never heard that song, and they want to know if they should. What do you say? Most likely you'll be effusive. It's just, ugh, it's so amazing. You have to hear it. Oh my god, you'll love it. Trust me. But what happens if they hear it, and they don't like it? Now this is your favorite song, and you've shared it with your closest friend, absolutely tripping over yourself to tell them how great it is. And they heard it, and shrugged. This can be disheartening, even depressing, and if you're as opinionated as I am, you might even be a little offended. This is the problem of modern reviewing. You've given your opinion of the quality of the song without providing a proper context for the listener. Now imagine if instead of your friend, you're talking to your dad. You probably know what your dad likes, and it probably isn't what you like, but you want to show him your favorite song. You probably expect he won't enjoy it, but it's a way to connect for him to understand you a little bit more. In this scenario, if he doesn't like it, that's not really a surprise. But then it begs the question, why should you bother? 
In both of these situations, you are sharing your taste. This is what I like, you're saying. This is what I think is good. But your taste is a door. You're locking yourself behind your taste as a definitive and shutting out the other person. You're hoping they'll open the door and join you inside by agreeing with your taste, but if they don't enjoy the song, you've locked them out of the conversation and the chance for shared understanding. Instead, you could try the deviant method. And yeah, I'm calling it the deviant method, because why not? First, start with the context in which you experience the song. I was at a party and this song came on and the whole room started dancing. Or, this song is the perfect showcase for this woman's voice. Or, the lyrics speak so much to my life. Or, I tried to learn this song on guitar and it is super intense. Or, this song is unlike anything else I've ever heard. This points them in the direction of your perspective, kind of like showing someone a painting and positioning them to catch the light at just the right angle. Now, they can hear the song, or at least try to hear the song, the way that you hear it. Next, you can add some analysis. What should they listen for? When the drums kicked in, the whole party shook. Or, the contrast between the highs and lows make it feel so expansive and huge. Or, something about the words really rang true with me after my breakup. Or, trying to learn the picking in this chorus finally helped me understand a technique I'd always wanted to master. Now, even if they don't enjoy your favorite song, they're more likely to understand your favorite song, and by extension, understand you. And, as an added benefit, there's a better chance that someone listening to the song after you've carefully explained your thoughts about it will enjoy it for the same reasons that you do. Obviously, this requires some practice. I've worked really hard to choose my criticisms more wisely, to avoid hyperbole, taking care to talk about things in specific terms, but I still get excited when I talk about things I love or things I hate. And that's okay. Those feelings are valid. But they aren't very effective at getting people to see things your way. And at the end of the day, that's what a good review should be about. Helping people to see things as you see them. Criticism can be practical. If I tell you that a movie is bad, why should you care? You'll either agree with my opinion, disagree with my opinion, or have no interest in my opinion. But if I tell you that I think you should watch a movie from a specific context, I've given you advice. Not on whether you will enjoy the movie, but on how you might enjoy the movie. It's the difference between saying, everyone should buy this new SUV because it's the best on the market, and saying, if you want lots of storage space and off-roading potential, buy this new SUV because it has the most space and superior shock absorption. This doesn't diminish how you might actually feel about the quality of the SUV, but it gives the audience a better idea of what they should expect if they're looking to buy a car. This applies to non-artistic topics too, like persuasive public speaking, editorials, even political arguments. If you just want to hear yourself spout off, by all means just throw your opinions around, that's your right. But if you want people to shift their perspectives, you'll need to be more thoughtful. If I could go back to 2009 and talk to the guy at Spin who wrote that Decemberist review using this method, I would have told him that, Having followed the band's evolution across several albums, the grand ambition of the Hazards of Love felt like the culmination of years of growth. I would have impressed upon him how unique the band's fusion of Baroque pop, folk, and rock had produced a record unlike almost anything else on the market, and how these potentially disparate elements combined to make an effective and consistent album that told an allegorical but surprisingly romantic narrative. And I would have said all of this without having to attack him or his taste. I don't want you to get the impression that this method is rigid, academic, or boring. If anything, I think it's quite freeing. 
All you need to do is hold up a particular lens to the light and see what shines through. And from there, how you share that light is entirely up to you. Try it at home. See a movie with your friends and try together or independently to figure out what message the movie might be trying to say. This is sort of the process in reverse, analyzing the material to find the right context. And if you can't pinpoint a context, that's a context right there. Maybe the movie contradicts itself, or maybe it's trying to say too many things at once and nothing really stands out. I wouldn't recommend stopping at, the movie doesn't say anything, it's just a dumb movie. Every piece of art, every ballad, every portrait, every poem, every comic book, every first-person shooter, every political rally says something, even if they don't mean to. And if you can't think of a good context, don't worry. You can just do what we do pull context out of a cup and analyze movies based on that. Yeah, sorry to give the game away, but Contextual Deviance is actually just a show about critical theory. That's why I want to call this the Deviant Method. I want this show to prove that you can talk about anything and come to valid conclusions by pointing yourself in one direction and following that thread where it leads. For us, this means ridiculous things like comparing Kubo and the Two Strings to Die Hard. But for you, that could mean explaining to your friends why you cry when you hear Cats in the Cradle, why you're offended by the campaign modes in Call of Duty, why you think the diverse voices on Marvel's Runaways are refreshing, or why you think the book Columbine by Dave Cullen should be essential reading for the gun control debate. Or maybe you'll be explaining your feelings to yourself. I mean, it's often hard to say why we believe what we believe. I think the Deviant Method can help. In each full episode of this show, we'll watch a movie and analyze it from randomly selected contexts that will change the way we talk about those movies. I hope you enjoy those episodes, because so far, we really enjoy making them. In these mini-episodes, or what I'm calling deviations, I'll be sharing a series of essays written with the Deviant Method in mind, spanning topics from music and pop culture to politics and personal narratives, maybe even some fiction, to show how flexible the structure can be and, I hope, how effective it can be. Join us next week, and hopefully many weeks after that, as we continue to figure out how to talk about what we talk about when we want to talk about it. Contextual Deviance. It's not what you watch. It's how you watch it. Thank you for listening to Contextual Deviance. If you'd like to reach out to us online, you can find us on Twitter at Contextual Deviance or email us at contextualdeviance at gmail.com. Special thanks to Minneapolis' own The Badman for the use of the song Gun Tonic off of their album Ain't Clean. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I've been your host, Christian Hagen. Have a nice day. Have a nice day!